During the pandemic, the way you've eaten has likely changed. Delivery services became an important part of the local economy. Either you ate out less, you cooked more, or you wholeheartedly embraced food delivery like DoorDash, Deliveroo, Grab, Swiggy, or Zomato based on where you live. Companies such as Grubhub and DoorDash making sure your food is safe from germs. The food service industry was worth over $900 billion in 2021 just in North America. and it's only getting bigger. We think there's a huge market. Anything that you want from your local business or from your local market sent to your home inside of 30 minutes. It's also changing. You may have experienced it already with all sorts of new experiences like food delivery, home chefs, and even robot-made food. Silicon Valley startup has set its sights on reinventing the fast food industry with its own robot pizzeria. Yes, this very much is a robot pizzeria, but robots haven't taken all the jobs. Zoom employees sprinkle the cheese and add the ingredients. As robots become more and more complex, the task they are able to complete is growing. Roombas can clean your home, mow your lawn, the Da Vinci robot by Intuitive helps in surgeries, and we haven't even touched on the scale of robotics used in manufacturing industries today. So what about a robot that makes you a meal? Well, today on Things Have Changed, we chat with someone who's making this possible. Uh, we've been building a robotic food kiosk. You could think of it like what your espresso machine did to your coffee. An espresso machine brings barista quality coffee to every place where there are people looking for coffee. We pretty much do the same to food bowls with a kiosk that we've built. Raja, founder of Zook, joins us today to talk about how he's going to change the way you see vending machines. If you'd known how important the technology economy was 20 years ago, would you have done things differently? The internet, cell phones, the cloud, and data. Things have changed. And we're here to talk about it. Hi, I'm Jed. Hi, I'm Shikhar. Welcome to Things Have Changed, your new economics and technology podcast. at things have changed at THC we've spoken about automation quite a bit we've spoken about the relationship between labor and automation and you know our really incredible episode with professor Seth Benzel he's one of the pioneers within that space and there were so many fascinating arguments that he made in the coming years about that interaction between labor and automation um so at a THC level we are like super excited to have our guest today and even on a personal level because uh, you know as a manufacturing engineer you know you want to see all the cool things that you see in the on the factory floor at home or something that you use on a day to day basis as a consumer robotics has is become widespread in the industrial setting and now it's jumping more or less robots are jumping from the factory floors to households and maybe even work environments uh and i don't mean like actual uh boston dynamics robots jumping those creepy things that are going to take over humanity no i'm not talking about those i'm talking about you know something closer to like uh you know last week i bought a roomba and it's incredible how good it's become robots are basically taking care of cleaning now so what about the next step which is for jed especially cooking because 
trust me when I tell you this, we shared an apartment for a couple of years. He's really bad at cooking. Um, so, you know, today we have, we're really excited to have our guest, Raja, um, co-founder and CEO of a company that's building a robotic solution for the cooking space. But this, we're talking about fresh food. So really interesting, really exciting to have you on, uh, Raja. Glad to have you on Things Have Changed. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jana Shikhar. Uh, quite excited too. Yeah. So, uh, Raja, we'd love to jump right in. Maybe you can tell us more about what you're building and why you're shuttling between the US, Singapore, Bangalore, China, and what's taking you to all these different destinations. Sure. Uh, we've been building a robotic food kiosk. You could think of it like what your espresso machine did to your coffee. Right? Uh, an espresso machine brings barista quality coffee to every place where there are people looking for coffee. We pretty much do the same to food bowls with a kiosk that we've built. We're starting with salads now. We've been building this product out of Bangalore. R&D center is based in Bangalore, while our company is headquartered in Singapore. We were planning to launch this product in Singapore shortly. But due to a few changes in plan, we are looking to launch it in the US instead. That's been keeping us exploring each of these markets over the last few months. That's awesome. So this company, Zook, We've all been at company cafeterias and the and the food isn't great. So were, were you sitting in one of these cafeterias and thinking, you know what, I should build something that would just fix this and be fast, be efficient. Was that your thought process? Where did you see the gap? Yeah, when I was in San Francisco for a while back, back in 2013, I wound down my first startup at that time and was looking at what areas are up for disruption next. One thing that's been closer to my heart is food. One of the things I love, love doing is cooking new dishes, right? But it's it's an activity of pleasure when you cook a new dish, but it doesn't hold up the same way if you have to cook every day. It becomes a chore. I used to still, let's say, cook occasionally at my apartment, but eat out almost every single day. Postmates was getting started. So I was thinking about what could be the future of food, I was commuting all the way down to Sunnyvale to have food at Shah's or uh, Palo Alto for uh, Zareen's. Very familiar. So I used to go all the way to consume these food. And I was wondering, okay, what if there was an app store for downloading food and your food just gets created? For that, you need an infrastructure to build that food. This started pretty much as a fantasy idea where your kitchen would be fully automated. It would even, let's say, fit into a San Francisco a studio apartment kind of real estate, quite small, but full-fledged, right? And that's where the whole fantasy started. I toyed around with it for a year, but didn't have the right skills or partners to get it going. And it was consumer play, heavy R&D was involved. So I just shelved it and moved on with life. And then later in 2018, I met my now co-founder, Ratul. In 2018, he called me saying, hey, I have this idea. He was describing it word by word. And I said, okay, Ratul, so here's here's the thing, let's meet. And I'll explain what's going on. And then we met a few minutes later. I started bouncing off all that we had in mind. And we realized that both of us are equally excited. But I dampened that excitement by saying why this product won't work. Because I had thought through that in the past and had a negative view about the go-to-market. The way we committed is essentially, uh, I was with my previous company. I had exited my second startup to a company called uh, CureFit based in India. It's a health conglomerate and we were building out a variety of fitness hardware devices. And I was spending most of my time yeah. in Shenzhen. While in Shenzhen, one of the very interesting things that I was a consumer of was these orange juice vending machines. 
In every street corner, you would have an orange and pomegranate juice vending machine. You have a shelf of oranges wow. and a shelf of pomegranates that you just have to walk up to this machine, scan a QR code, select orange versus pomegranate, uh, select your cup size and you place an order, make a payment with VPay. It rolls in each orange one by one, cuts them, squeezes them and gives you freshly squeezed wow. juice. It's, it's such an amazing experience. I can't, I couldn't <laughs> resist myself from going back to this machine again and again and pay those, let's say, 20 RMB or whatever that was uh, every single time. And uh, later it also became a habit of drinking uh, this juice after breakfast and dinner. And at some point I realized that I always was standing in a queue, which meant the business is doing well. And this, this happened both uh, during both peak times. Uh, during the breakfast peak time around 8, 8.30 and again during dinner peak time after 6.30 p.m. I realized one thing that if you're trying to build a full-fledged automation, it's going to be much, much harder. Involves all the, let's say, disadvantages I've been thinking about. But if you simplify the entire problem to one segment of food, and in this case, they had simplified it to just oranges and pomegranates, things that could be squeezed, right? Then the entire thing becomes a lot more viable. So uh, that, that, is, that is where it occurred that we should rather build a food ATM, which makes it possible for everyone across the world to access, not just the top 2% of people who could afford a fully automated home kitchen, but the entire world. And immediately called up Ratul. He got excited. And he started thinking about the areas we could double down into. And one interesting thing that also happened is while building up this team, both of us had some bit of hardware experience. I had hardware business building or product experience. While Ratul had experience building uh, uh, large-scale IoT systems, neither of us had built this complexer hardware product ourselves. Ratul came across this project, a graduation project of a couple of students. They had built this massive device that would occupy a huge space but had all the ingredients stored and made a few dishes. He reached out to the guys who built it and one was doing consulting with the defense department of India and the other guy was wow. doing this regular job at a health company. Both of them joined in together. What more can you ask for than, let's say, a team that's motivated to build this exact product? That's incredible. And w were they building this prototype, if you think, if you say, um, were they bring building it outside their work hours, outside their normal jobs? Yeah, that's so incredible that they were just creating something and it just kind of fit in your plans. So they were, and they actually built built it for their graduation project back in 2013. We just saw their uh, YouTube video somewhere, reached out to them. They were still excited about building such a project. Just that wow. uh, th this wasn't a project that was going to be commercial, like commercially viable for them at that time and went on to doing other things. Uh, the moment we said this could be their day job, they both quit their then jobs and joined us uh, immediately. That's awesome. Jed, we need to get on YouTube, dude. <laughs> That's where it's at. <laughs> no, but yeah, no, this is, this is so cool. So from that initial solution, at what point did you realize, you know, this could be a scalable solution? We didn't know if it's going to be scalable as a product at the time, but uh, one of the things that we did is figured out our go-to market for this product. So we started with chart. Chart is a kind of Indian snack. Started with the Indian snack, Indian snack bowls, and then we decided that that's probably going to restrict our market. Then we realized salads are on the rise across the globe, and started focusing more on salad bowls. So we we wanted to build one segment of food and do it right before we scale up to any any further segments. So we thought, okay, let's start with 
bowl based dishes and among bowl based dishes let's enter in on salad because salads have growing market with a large base and started building it out for snack and salad bowls uh, for the first version so the moment we had initial proof of concept we were able to sign up the two largest cafeteria aggregators in india they were struck by the pandemic and they realized the importance of a contactless solution uh-huh. they immediately committed uh-huh. to taking us to most of their offices the moment we have the product and started encouraging us to build out the product i also went and spoke to a few apartment complexes and it was unbelievable acceptance we spoke to 22 condominium complexes of which 19 yes said yes to have us on board so this this level of acceptance kind of gave us that confidence that hey this is a product to double down on people seem to be let's say welcoming this and uh, the pandemic seems to be a tailwind and that is when we started doubling down on the product yeah i i think it's it's fascinating because i used to live so all throughout post well even in college i lived in very large apartment complexes and there were certain areas that didn't have um a really good selection of food in general grocery stores were quite far even fast food restaurants would you believe it were quite far this is a place called Emeryville um in the bay area i'm i'm sure you're familiar with that area recently there's there's a mall yeah, that popped absolutely. up you know there's a bunch of other stuff there Yeah and and I used to live at a place where you know I, at that time I didn't have a car my car was broken it's very difficult to get food in general I had to take a bus or take you know borrow a car to go somewhere to to go get nice food and so w- when I think about this problem that you're solving you know the the market that you're looking at was me right somebody who was working in this very large apartment complex and didn't have access to to decent food around the area. I think there was a subway about 3 blocks down but I was like nah that's that's not good enough food for me. But generally right like the kind of ideas that I get when I think who benefits from this beyond the the average office worker is also the person who's now working from home because of the pandemic, right? And spends most of his hours and his week at home. now so that it, it's it's just really fascinating because we also had a vending machine in the building but it only had chips and that was about the time my chips and my snack consumption went through the roof <laughs> because before everybody was working from home i was already i was already working from home about two to three times a week so it's just fascinating that that that's an actual problem one of the things interesting things that happened around the time we started is offices were fully shut people were spending more time at uh, their homes much mm-hmm. like uh, uh, you had an experience right that is when we started shifting our focus towards uh, the condominium complexes because that is where the, the same target audience that we were targeting at uh, offices were sitting in in fact that led us to focus on uh, snacks because uh, people were still cooking their uh, lunch and dinner but snacks is one segment where you generally require a lot of ingredients to make a tasty meal or you have to have a packaged good yeah and uh, just to for everyone on the call hearing jed snack is one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves because it sounds like he's eating like gravel he makes so much noise it's like love it, chips yeah but it's so fascinating raja because over here you know at least in the bay area people are used to seeing robots on wheels just carrying food everywhere it's like a bay area thing you go on san francisco you go any of these universities you just know you're going to see 
robots doing stuff for you. What is interesting is when we moved to Phoenix, we lived very close to Arizona State University, ASU, and we were stunned to see this company by Starship Technologies, I think. They carry food, Domino's and and burgers and stuff throughout that region like Tempe. It's it's unbelievable that suddenly that uh people want these cool experiences and having this in the workplace like i would eat salads a lot more just to see this exactly like how you looked at this orange and pomegranate juice making machine and realized we got to build something like this yeah the starship robot delivers food to you in time so that's primarily addressing the labor shortage problem that uh, you have uh, in delivering food in fact there's a even bigger problem in the market so you are looking at a market where there are restaurants which are in specific areas and the demand pockets are in different areas one startup i used to really love uh, back in 20 uh, 12 or 13 i don't remember when this was it's a company called spoon rocket and these guys used to have a bunch of dishes prepared by the michelin star chefs in their kitchen and loaded up into a truck and the truck used to go around uh every time i ordered uh they would give me a promised time of delivery of 6 minutes and it would get delivered in 2 minutes 2 to 3 minutes at my curbside uh, i would just go pick it up this was such an amazing experience that every single time i was ordering from them and one of the other things that they used to do is keep shuffling the uh, menu every single day their uh, chef would keep bringing in variety they had done two things amazing one is whenever you are hungry you have the food coming to you and second if you are eating the same food every day you get bored of it so they made sure that there is ample variety built into the food and were able to get good traction but they couldn't sustain for whatever unit economics reason so this was one one another uh, thing that had uh, stuck in terms of experience uh, to us yeah uh, zooming back in you shouldn't be waiting for 30 to 45 minutes the experience should be where you feel hungry you get access to your food uh, right then and there in fact uh, if you think about uh, the amount of environmental impact these per order deliveries have right uh, uh, think of just yeah. the top delivery company doordash they deliver uh, they are on track to deliver around 1.3 billion packages this year what that means in terms of wow. uh, gallons of fuel spent is even if you consider 8 miles per order of travel you're talking about 400 million gallons of fuel that's going to get burnt this year just by doordash deliveries what if there could be a better approach wow. to distributing food that's that's essentially uh, one another problem that i think we should be looking to solve in the next uh, few years what i'm thinking about now is how these machines are maintained so we're we're thinking about the operational costs right now of doordash and what that uh that co2 footprint might be i'm thinking about how do we how are we maintaining this um this tool of yours is there somebody coming in to give the ingredients every so often how much do you have to come in and put in you ingredients is that based on a, a consumption basis is that you know how do you keep food fresh like th- this kind of things are interesting to me because when i think about how do you make the customer experience so great as you had mentioned somebody you know driving around in a truck deriv- delivering fresh food created by michelin star chefs you know if you're looking to that as a standard how are you maintaining the the, the top standard that you know your customer gets the best experience when they they order from this machine so i'm curious about maintenance basically the, the kiosk we built have a lot of cartridges we call these containers cartridges we have around 60 plus containers within the kiosk 
uh, each of which could contain different ingredients. The ingredients get swapped every single day. So you uh, take out the old containers, dock in the new container. Wow. It's an activity that takes not more than a few minutes because the product has been designed from the ground up, uh, keeping replenishment in mind. So it's, it's just like changing your printer cartridge. You plug out the old one, you plug in the new one, and you're good to go. And the other thing to also be wary of here is, let's say, uh, any contamination in the machine. To make sure that that never happens, one of the other key design choices we have made is that uh, any part that touches the food goes back to the kitchen when replenishment happens. While it might sound complicated, uh, operationally it's not that complicated. The machine stays clean by uh, self-cleaning mechanisms through which even between two dishes, wherever food could have a cross-contact between two preparations, that is getting clean. I Just a, a high-level question for me. Let's say Amazon adopts this in, in one of the Seattle offices, right? We have tons of, of floors. Let's say maybe there's, there's two machines in, in the entirety of the building. Would there need to be somebody on site or somebody nearby in the area to come, you know, whoever has been trained by Zook and whatnot? Like, how, what does that look like? I'm just curious. Uh, in terms of the product operating, uh, it's fully unmanned. So the way it works is an office just lets us in, showing us a place that's going to be the most convenient for the employees. Give us a power socket there. You don't even need to give us a plumbing point. And it, it operates for the entire day. There is one point where there is going to be a touch point between Zook and the SNR operations team and the machine, which is when we change the ingredients on a regular basis. I think the modularity, I mean, plays a huge role too in not just maintenance, but probably also in adding of new dishes, right? In the future, let's say you, you decide to move on from salads and and nachos and, you know, you decide to make pasta or some some stuff like that, you know, like... Maybe there is a fresh pasta making tool that you could trade in for one of the modules in there. So the modularity, I think, helps a lot with um, both those things is just how versatile this tool can be in general. And if there's a, you know, it, let's say in the future, if if Amazon decides that we don't want this anymore, we want uh, our, our we've done a survey and our employees actually would prefer to have something with a little meat in it. But it's it's fascinating that it's it, you thought about it from a modular perspective. Yeah, not just that. In fact, one of the things, like you said, right, people might want different kinds of food in different places. When we partner with one brand versus another brand, uh, each brand's recipe, even for the same dish, could be very different. So it is modular to the extent that you could call out which ingredient is in which cartridge uh, and, and the kiosk knows how to prepare the recipe uh, for every dish. This is possible because every recipe is also digitized. So we have something called a recipe studio where the chefs go nice. on, drag and drop different uh, operations and then uh, build out a recipe as an instruction set for the machine. If you think about any recipe, when, when I'm giving you a recipe, it's primarily a instruction set on, let's say, how to prepare this dish. And uh, you need to give this instruction set to this kiosk. And the, the interesting thing here is, uh, while in a typical restaurant, you have to train every outlet on how to prepare this new dish. Here, it is just a matter of programming it once on the recipe studio. And uh, the next moment it's available across all the outlets. If you want a completely different set of dishes, all we have to do is just say, okay, for this location, here are the dishes that go live. There's a notion, at least to me as well, like cooking is an art. It's not really a science because I put all my recipe, like the ingredients and I somehow still bought something up. Something is missing and something is not 
exactly like how my mom makes it, for example. So are you consulting on a regular basis to create these, to basically break down these recipes into like standard operating procedures for the robots to then just go, okay, because it's a lot more efficient with uh, measurements, I bet. So it's probably putting exactly the right amounts and just creating an incredible uh, food experience. As much as we think ourselves as a robotics company, we also look at uh, ourselves as a food company, right? Ultimately, these we are not selling the robot. We are operating much like a quick service restaurant or a food court. One thing that we have been doing uh, consistently is engaging culinary uh, experts throughout. So in fact, slightly less than one third of our team is culinary folks. In terms of the R&D uh, chefs, we have people who have worked with uh, five-star hotels in US and uh, in India and also in cruise ships. And we've also been consulting people who have expertise in specific cuisines to be able to understand the nuances mm. of getting the taste profile right. The, the reason the food doesn't taste the same when you make it versus your mom makes it, makes it is because the proportions and the timing matter a lot. That, that's what makes, makes up the taste. Yeah. And one needs to identify which are the critical points and program it into the recipe. Also, your, your mom's just a better cook, sugar. Just to, to <laughs> the wheel. I also, definitely agree. I definitely agree. <laughs> Your chefs bring in all the creativity. So the, when they create a new dish, uh, it involves that art uh, aspect. Post that even in a mm. uh, restaurant, the chef would transfer the recipe to line of cooks. They call them commies. And the commies typically repeat the recipe. It's, it's all about repeatability after the dish is created. So chefs bring in their creativity and then there's a whole line of staff who ensure repeatable, high-quality food is being delivered to consumers, right? So uh, we're not trying to replace the chefs at all here. Uh, the chefs would stay, they would be creating their dishes, and the chefs would uh, keep delivering, uh, let's say, newer dishes, newer variations of dishes. But uh, delivering repeatability and consistency is something machines are great at doing. And that is exactly where... Yeah. Uh, our product would uh, step on it. It would give uh, consistent, high-quality food as long as the ingredients stay the same quality, which is uh, where the supply chain needs to be taken care of. Yeah, I'm just hoping, like, I, I don't know if uh, either of you have any luck in making uh, an omelette, but every time I try to make an omelette, it becomes scrambled eggs. Like, and if you check on YouTube, there are, there's, like, the show where it, it breaks down exactly the science to making a really good omelet and it's like oh my god this is too complicated for me uh but yeah so uh, raja your you know th this device has so many factors going into it so many parameters going into it uh we would love to your thoughts you know we we i know it's highly technical but we'd love your thoughts as to you know when i when we talk about trade offs right in the decision making the metrics for success for us is is it revenue from the companies like you know the cafeterias or the condominiums is it the number of customers we're serving is it the number of meals we're serving like i bet there are so many factors going into it so right now how are you thinking about those those multitude of uh, factors going into success. The business model that we've chosen is to make money from every bowl of food as opposed to selling the machines. If you are serving the consumers directly, 
you learn from every consumer's uh, preference and make it a, a lot more uh, interesting experience for the consumer. So uh, you might have heard people discussing a lot about, let's say, collective intelligence. You uh, uh, learn from, let's yeah. say, one side, and if you're able to centralize that knowledge, uh, you're able to, let's say, do better on every side. And that naturally happens with a network of kiosks as opposed to selling a machine to a location where the owner of the location would start thinking about what would be the return on investment. It is a very long cycle. So we don't want our location owners to be deliberating about whether to have this machine or not. Uh, as long as they have the right demand in their place, we want to be able to address such a place. We intend to make money from uh, every bowl of dish sold. No upfront costs. We could just deploy the product in a place which has good demand. Of course, we ask for demand promises through minimum business guarantees and uh, things like that. So that's been one trade-off uh, that we won't sell the machine. We would take the CapEx uh, and manage the CapEx through other means. The second choice is uh, regarding throughput. We could have built a machine that uh, addressed the lunch uh, throughput by making it large and uh, having, let's say, a lot of multitasking going on inside that. Uh, versus let's say make this one machine that has slightly lower throughput but uh, could be present everywhere we took the latter because that gives a lot of flexibility what this entails is that uh, in terms of giving a high throughput your footprint of real estate should still be comparable to a large machine so that's something we've wanted so we have a 12 square feet machine which uh, could deliver a throughput of between 40 to 60 plates during the lunch peak time which is typically one and a half hours so you could think of this one kiosk like, let's say, a sweet greens counter or a chipotle counter where there's just one or two people yeah. to serve your orders. Right? If you have more people coming in, you could just maybe make the counter a little larger. Uh, so that's what we do. We put in a second kiosk or a third kiosk or a fourth kiosk. The kiosk could operate as a cluster. So uh, depending on the de demand oh, you have, wow. you could actually have, let's say, a slightly larger footprint made available for the kiosk, have two or three kiosks. And that way you get the throughput. So that's that's one another trade trade off that we have done. That's that's awesome because the company now it it moves from capex on their end to an opex, right? It's an operating expense for them because you're selling just bowls, but you're getting the collective intelligence, kind of like the you know it's called the Tesla model because you run the Teslas and you have this incredible network and now they're all feeding data to you and now you know which recipes work which recipes don't and then you get that feedback that's fascinating absolutely and the icing on top is while a typical chef right a human chef can remember maybe 20 30 40 recipes in his mind a system like this can remember millions of recipes uh, it's, it's just limited by the database that you have right so uh, what this enables is yeah. Extreme amounts of personalization. So your spicy could be different from my spicy. Uh, my creamy could be different from, let's say, Jade's creamy. And I might, yeah. I might not want uh, peanuts in my food, and let's say uh, you might not want gluten in your food, right? So all of these can yeah. be remembered forever by this, let's say, chef of collective intelligence. So for the same dish, your recipe and my recipe would be different over time. It would keep evolving over time depending on the choices we make. Game changer, especially, uh, you know, as we talk uh, about um, moving to like trying to understand which markets you're trying to target. And you mentioned it briefly in the early part of the call where, you know, US is something that's on your mind. It just makes complete sense because, um, you know, the cost of the device is lower and the advantage here is labor is a big issue here in the US. Especially now, yeah. 
just have a whole series on labor shortage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So according to you, what makes uh, the United States stick with regards to at least your product uh, for a market that you're targeting? And have you thought of other markets? Because I know you are also based out of Singapore. So even that seems like a great option to start off with. Singapore is actually a great market to start with. People are already quite used to a lot of vending machines. By the way, these orange juice vending machines are yeah. all over Singapore now. People are wow. quite used to having fresh food from vending machines to some extent. Not fresh food, at least juice now. And it's a lot simpler market to operate. If you give a certain recipe combination that's going to work well in most localities, it's not very varied in Singapore. So it is an excellent market to start with, but it is a smaller market uh, when it comes to scale up. And uh, in products like what we are building, it is always a better approach to launch in a market where you could scale up right there because you once you cross all the regulatory approvals, that one-time activity unlocks a lot of value. We've always been looking at US as the scale-up market. And uh, now that we have an opportunity to launch directly into the US market, we are prioritizing that over Singapore. That said, uh, let's look at what makes US market uh, interesting, right? So a lot of things are not possible in the US market. A lot of things that are taken for granted in India are not possible in US market unless certain technology exists. Just to give you a few examples, yeah. most people that I've met in US were quite amazed to know that in India, every single day, fresh packets of milk get delivered in the morning. And whenever you order groceries for just one and a half to two dollars, it gets delivered in the next 10 to 15 minutes. And this is something that's unimaginable in a country like US where there are, there are labor shortages and things are spaced out a bit. And it's possible only with technology. That's that is the reason you see Starship making good progress here. And the second thing is yeah. cost of food is already quite high. It's, it's been crazy. So I came here last, in, last time in 2018 uh, when I attended CES. And back then, if let's say a typical meal bowl costed eight to nine dollars right now it costs somewhere around 16 dollars it's crazy uh, uh, inflation of course while some portion of it is attributable to uh, increase of increase in cost of supplies a good portion of it is also attributed attributable to all the other problems that you have in the market labor yeah uh, availability of labor itself right? so the, the key problem here is can you offer this facility in a affordable way to a location. So that is the reason, let's say, while a Google and Facebook is able to offer a cafeteria, most other offices cannot offer a cafeteria or a food facility inside their office. A lot of, lot of what is not possible in today's market would be possible with this kind of a product. The cost of food is super high. If we make the same, the same food that costs 16 to $20 available, 10 to $12 uh, with the same quality, but better traceability, that strikes us a very strong value prop in this market. Yeah, and during the pandemic, there was an article about how many bakeries uh, making muffins and cupcakes have actually gone under. And uh, I don't know, Raja, if you noticed this, getting into the airports in San Francisco or, uh, or so, you're starting to see this this company called Sprinkles, which is a, which started as a cupcake bakery. And now they have expanded to have cupcake vending machines where you just punch in what you want from the list and it drops the box of the chocolate chocolate chip muffin onto an opening and you remove it. And now they have scaled this like every, I think at least five different airports that I have visited in the US now has it. So imagine that it's just a box. Someone comes in and drops in new muffins every day um, and 
they are making it's a great business because it's great taste and also easily accessible without needing labor to give you that muffin you know so very fascinating how this this space of contact less but still promise of high quality and fresh food yeah absolutely so in fact there is this other company called farmers fridge which has been doing quite well in a few cities outside of the bay area i think they are in los angeles and good chunk of the east coast maybe in boston uh, chicago i recently saw a lot of deployments in chicago they stock up a lot of pre-made salads and yogurt parfaits that you could just walk up to it and get any of these when you want apart from packaged goods let's say instead of buying those salads from a trader's jo and keeping it at your place or let's say a uh, whole foods and keeping it at your in your fridge you have these mini fridges which also went out packages right in your office airport and uh, in the in the metro stations as well i saw a lot of these deployments yeah it's it's interesting because you're you're talking about airports and i i've been flying a lot this year lately and you know what the the weirdest problem for me is that the restaurants and the food the cafeterias in the airports they open and close at normal times although the flights that i board aren't always at the normal times So the issue that I have primarily is that there's not going to be any food at the airport if I land there and I want food right away. You know, and typically people spend a lot of time in the airport. Are you kidding me? Like if it's an international flight in the US, if you're that guy, you're there 4 hours before <laughs> the flight. If it's a local flight, if you're also that guy, you're there 2 hours before that flight. A lot of the time that I spend getting in if I don't get stopped will take 30 minutes to an hour. and then i'm actually sitting there for over 2 hours regardless of what flight i'm taking and it's it's quite a while and sometimes if it's too early there's nothing there to feed me in the morning and it's come up so often that i now bring snacks with me to eat um whenever i travel and always have to bring water because i'm not sure if if there's going to be something that's open in one of these airports so i think it's it's a brilliant place to start Would you say the the whole OPEX model is is your big differentiation in terms of the business model? It is three things. One, essentially there's a there's a business model angle to it which is let's say you're moving customers from taking a CapEx call to an OPEX call which makes it easy for them. And this would yeah. also evolve. Any anything with to do with business model would evolve over time much faster. And there are a few things that would take slightly longer cycles to evolve. So here while i call it a differentiator today the the key differentiator on business model could be something slightly different from what we are speculating in in 3 months or 6 months or a year it will keep evolving over time so the, this definitely is one differentiation as a starting point we've identified a pain point for locations that the person who's making a decision on what facilities they want to offer to their office it's not the best use of this all her time to be sitting and doing all these roi modeling and then justifying it to their management and that's that's the pain point that we are using with this yeah and this this is bound to evolve that said there are two other things one is most of the fresh food kiosks out there take up between 150 square feet to 200 square feet you might have come across a coffee making robot in the airport or maybe a juice making robot in one of the walmarts in the east coast right so there are a lot of these products that work excellent but they can be kept in only places where you have abundance of space right you cannot keep these in places like let's say a lobby of a hospital hotel or a office pantry uh, because they are large they take up the space of the entire lobby or the entire pantry if you were to put them right so that's 
one key area. So uh, the fact that our product costs uh, takes just about let's say twelve square feet of space itself is a, a key differentiation that enables us to be present in many places where most other kiosks cannot be present. Two other companies that have been able to do this is let's say one Chowbotics, which built a salad machine in the past. They they've uh, pretty much expanded to a few hundred locations. And the other company has been in the water dispensing space, which is called Bevy, uh, B-E-V-I, and they do flavored and aerated water. So th- this is one key differentiation in the segment that we are getting in, taking a learning from people who have done that right in terms of space constraints. And the second mm. uh, aspect that's also a key differentiator is the cost of these itself. So why haven't others been able to do this OPEX-driven model? It's because of the amount of CapEx that goes into building each of these products. If a product costs you $100,000, $200,000, you cannot take the CapEx on your uh, books or you cannot, let's say, get a good return on investment and to justify another class of investor taking up these assets. So that is the other key thing. Being a product which could be built at at a fraction of the cost is something that's a function of the homegrown technology that we've built here. The companies that are doing this out there, I mean, they are charging $200,000, $300,000 for a similar product and the fact that you your team has been able to get this to a $15,000 mark which is a factor lesser than everyone else and also provide you know great optionality is a testament to what you guys are building yeah absolutely so you asked about trade-offs sometime back right so one of the key trade-offs here is yeah whether you want to make a manufacturing focused robot with micron level precision or do you want to build a 3d printer which is good for prototype that results in a massive order of magnitude difference in the kind of technology choices you would make and one of the key trade-offs i would say that we made is to say okay hey food doesn't need these manufacturing robots which have micron level precision yeah we haven't even talked about that part (laughs) the amount of data visibility you can scale creativity push it onto the cloud. So yeah, I just love this wave. And uh, Raja, I, I know we want to be cognizant of the time that you have to spend. You're building incredible things. So uh, we could speak for hours. That's how it felt, this whole conversation. But before we leave, we just want to give you the stage, hand you the mic to kind of give a shout out to your team, shout out to your company and where people can actually find your product and hear more about updates and all the cool things that you're building. Since the time we started, right, both I and Ratul come from uh, software backgrounds, especially from consumer software backgrounds. You know, the crazy speed at which things move in the consumer software industry, that that's pretty much made us really impatient folks. And we've pretty much (laughs) been talking in terms of months while building a robotic product, while the industry is used to talking in terms of uh, years and uh, decades. And uh, it's, it's been a very uh, hard journey for our team to bring the product uh, out in the market till now because uh, A, uh, they have to help us understand uh, that we need to go through this cycle and at the same time carry on with building this product. And they've been able to build this, this kind of a product that's first in the market with a lot of distinct advantages in terms of uh, uh, cost, compactness and a variety of things, primarily because Almost everyone was motivated to build a physical product that was used by, I don't know, millions of customers, right? Some had a dream of building a food robot in the past and some had a dream of building racing cars and whatnot, and they had actually built it. 
I think it's a huge accomplishment that our, team, our teams have pulled out with thanks to the entire team. The other thing is our partners and investors who've been supportive so far, right? Sometimes our partners gave us key insights about the industry. For example, what flies in the segments they are operating in quite upfront. Some of these cafeteria operators that we've been working with, they helped us make sure that we understand the market really well. And that helped us engineer the product for the right market. So that's one another set of people I would like to take a minute to thank. Coming to what we are looking for ahead, we are keen to partner with any brand who wants to take their product to a larger audience base. So if you're a brand who's doing excellent in terms of uh, consumer ratings in the localities you operate in and want to uh, see the next order of magnitude scale, maybe we should have a chat to see how Zook could enable taking your brand to, let's say, the next 50, 100 locations from the, let's say, five to six locations where you've been doing an excellent job. And all of this would be powered by the five to six locations you have, which means your utilization goes up. And the second set of people that I would really like to get in touch with is location owners. It could be a person managing the facilities and employee engagement for an office or a co-working space, or if you're a supermarket or if you're even a, let's say, a mall or a, let's say, airport or a metro station. It will be a wonderful to have a conversation to see where there could be synergies. And we are currently focused on the US market, so any other market might take longer for us to uh, think about. That's awesome. Yeah, Raja, great, great to have you on. So good to see that recently raised a big pre-seed round. So congrats on that. And, you know, I want to live in a future where I can go and order <laughs> nachos out of a zook by Me too. robotic kiosk. So looking forward to it and thank you so much thanks Jared and Shikhar it was a wonderful conversation it's great